Welcome to the Small Nonprofit Podcast with down-to-earth practical advice on how to get things done in your small organization. You are going to change the world and we can help. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Cindy Wagman, and I'm joined by my co-host, Anya McGlynn. Hello, everybody. Hey, Anya. So as you know, I love to talk about um, behavior change in and our beliefs and what underlies our our decisions and our activities. I feel like this is one of those things that's not talked about enough in our sector around how it affects what we do and the outcomes we have, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, you know, especially with fundraising, there's a crucial decision that has to be made, right? And And when we understand better how people make decisions and what motivates people one way or the other, then, you know, we can get to yes, right? You know, the crucial decision that we're all trying to get our donors to make is to give. What happens if we understand the motivations or the reasons why people make decisions? Yeah. uh, And the crazy thing is, like, oftentimes, we don't rationalize or have these like explicit motivations. So Mm -hmm. much of our decisions or our brain's activities is completely unconscious. Like we're not even aware that we're making a decision. And in fact, most of the time after our brains have made the decision, we look for information to support that decision Mm -hmm. instead of considering the information and then making the decision. That's absolutely like reverse. Yeah, yeah, like confirmation bias, right? We all learned learned uh, quite a bit about confirmation bias after the 2016 American election, I feel like, because yeah. we're like, is that possible? But also, yeah, another book that, that for me really impacted uh, me in, in this area is uh, Thinking Fast and Slow. Mm. Um, it's quite dense and it goes through, um, you know, more than 30 years of, of research by, by uh, the two authors, uh, Daniel Kahneman, and I can't remember the second author. But yeah, so it describes basically how we have two parts of our brains, one of them that's responsible for like, sort of evaluating things in a, in a sort of a meaningful way, in a slow way, taking all the pieces, making it considered, like if you're buying a house, for example, you know what I mean? You would take all those pieces, but then there's this other aspect of our brain, the fast part that makes these very instinctual decisions. Um, and it's obviously, you know, based on, on, you know, our old lizard brain, right. That had to assess risk, um, and make a decision very quickly. Uh, and that, that old lizard part of our brain is still responsible for a lot of the way that we make decisions. And those shortcuts, which are also called heuristics, which are basically our brain is so, so smart that it figures out ways to make complex decisions really, really quickly, which, you know, it can benefit us significantly, especially when we understand how those decisions are made. We Mm -hmm. also know that it can I don't want to say hurt us, but it can certainly limit us when we understand that we have to start to change some of those things to change our own behaviors. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to fundraising, the more we understand those, it's almost like impulse. The more we understand that, the more we can cr- create the environment where our donors are going to say yes, based on the irrational part of of our brains and how it responds instead of the, you know, what are the numbers? What's the story? What are the details? Right. It's super interesting, but doesn't it at some point, like where's the line between manipulation? You know what I mean? Like, like if, if we understand 
if we start to really at a at a micro level start to understand how to influence decisions in a way that's not conscious or that is relying on heuristics and like and sort of like short circuiting the decision process like to what extent are extent are we like manipulating gifts and to what extent are we are we attracting donors right and well, it, it, for another day, but it's, you know, no, I think like, let's have that discussion. Cause I think it's important. And I think that, I mean, I personally believe people are not going to make a donation to your organization unless they believe in the, the work. Right. Mm-hmm. And I don't think they're going to part with money that they can't, def- that, you know, they know that they can't part with or that they, mm-hmm. they don't have to part with. Right. I don't think people are going into debt to make donations. Um, so I do think that there's a context in which the belief ha- is there before, before people are going to give. I think it's understanding that sometimes we don't have to, if the belief is there already, we don't have to go to like the world's end to convince people to give. We just have to make it easier for them to give, right? Easier to fit within the way that they're their brain works. Right. Um, I mean, I definitely understand that this can be used for more maniacal manipulation. Um, but when it comes to fundraising, I think what you're doing is, and, and Dana mentions this, you're reducing the friction, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so often like our best efforts around our fundraising actually creates more friction and makes it harder for people to say yes when maybe they really do want to, but then you're creating all these barriers for them to second guess or make it harder or more likely to fall off. So do I think that we can get people to to part with their money if they really don't want to? Not in a sustainable way, right? Like I don't think we'll ever get to a point where people are giving you monthly donations and feeling terrible about it every month. <laughs> but yeah, I do right. think that there's a lot to be said around just making it easy, understanding how our brains work to make it easier for people to say yes. Yeah. It's, but it's maybe it's not easier to say yes. It's just because it's still like, it still feels like we're, you know, you're to some extent you're taking the decision-making out of, you know what I mean? Like, like, if you have, you know, decision fatigue, right? Like yeah. you just get exhausted about having to choose. And so you just kind of want someone to choose for it for you. Yeah, and I exactly. guess like seen most generously and like, and like really most accurately, like what we're suggesting here is there's a way in which you can sort of remove that mechanism of decision and make the donor feel as though they're on this inevitable journey towards <laughs> pulling out their credit card, I guess. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, like, there is kind of a sense of removing the decision framework as a barrier to yeah. the donation. Yeah. But in my mind, it's almost like they've made the decision, right? Like the, the whether or not, and we can argue like the shortcuts that our brains make, are they good for us or bad for us? But what we're saying is chances are the donors kind of already, their brain has is making that decision anyways. We're just understanding and and facilitating it. But yeah, I mean, there's so much here. Um, And as I said, I think there's a lot of relevance to fundraising. We talk about it a lot in our work and with our clients, for example, in our flip side fundraising program, because those shortcuts 
can work against us when we're trying new things, when we're doing things that are uncomfortable. And oftentimes when we're running a small organization, you know, we're doing things that we quote unquote sign up to do, like oftentimes fundraising. Mm -hmm. So we are, we talk about a lot about it in the context of how you get comfortable fundraising uh, and how you start to be a good fundraiser by understanding those shortcuts and rewiring your brain to be more effective. So there's so much, we could talk about this forever. Um, I love this topic because it's so relevant, I think, to understanding how we behave as people which is not rationally. And the more we understand that, the more we can, you know, change ourselves and, and uh, influence other people. So with that, uh, it's a pleasure to introduce Dana. I also want to make sure people, um, if they want to learn more about this, we are uh, participating in the Individual Giving Virtual Summit, where Dana is one of the speakers and I, Cindy, am the co-host, one of the co-hosts for the North American track, I guess, for of the session. So uh, we've included links to the summit in the show notes. It is such an incredible offer- opportunity. If you're interested in individual giving, you literally have the world leaders uh, in this topic all together at an incredibly affordable price. And uh, it's going to be a fun day because we always like to have fun too. So uh, if you can join us for that, the link is in the in the show notes. And otherwise, get your pen and paper out because Dana has lots of really interesting ways that you can start to make it easier for your donors to give you their money. All right, here we go. Dana Siegel is Senior Partner Consultant at Equals MC Consulting and Deputy Director of the National Arts Fundraising School. Her consultancy portfolio includes INGOs, NGOs, and charities across the UK, Europe, and Africa, including UNICEF, World Animal Protection, Afrobarometer, and South Bank Centre. She's delivered decision science training for fundraisers at organizations around the world, including Oxford University, RNLI, and MSF International. Please join me for this exciting conversation with Dana. One of the things that I've heard that I think underlines or underlies all of this is the idea that people are perfectly irrational. And that so often when we think about engaging our communities, our supporters, we always put it this rational lens on like, what do we, you know, if people were thinking rationally, this is what we would expect them to do, but that's not how people behave. So can you talk to us about how that underlies these three areas or these three sciences and how they might showcase or prove that to be true? Absolutely. I mean, it's so interesting. And I think, One of the biggest challenges that the not-for-profit sector has had is that as a sector, we constantly have to justify ourselves. But why this? Why is this important? Why should I care? Why should you care? And in a way, that way of thinking has turned us into people who try to rationalize everything to our donors. So I think Mm. it's slightly our bad habits a little bit that make us forget that actually a lot of the time people are not behaving like that at all. And at its root, um, the idea of rationality and irrationality comes from the fact that on a wider level, the economic system that we operate in and anybody who's studied economics or anybody who's done maybe an MBA or something like that, 
will know that there's so many assumptions you have to make when you're making economic calculations. Assume that the market is perfect. Assume that there's a perfectly healthy level of competition when just the reality of life is that it's just not like that at all. Yeah. And that's so true of our emotions as well. You know, we're just driven by our emotions far more than we're given credit for. And if Mm. that's true of us, that's true of our donors because we're all human. Yeah. So what happens is that uh, it's actually, it's a Daniel Kahneman who wrote a book called Thinking Fast and Slow he coined these two systems in our brain. System one being the irrational, intuitive, emotional, quick responding system. And system, sorry, system one being that, and system two being the very rational, logical, analytical brain. And lots of neuroscience studies have showed us that we spend between 80 to 90% of our time in system one, Mm. whereas we only spend 10 to 20% of our time in system two. The implication of that is that most of the time our donors are on their own autopilots. Mm-hmm. So why are we taking them out of that space? Yes. We need to work with them in that space. And the reason that they're on autopilot is because ultimately they're trying to conserve energy. Our brain takes up around 2% of our body mass, but 20% of our energy. So mm-hmm. we're doing it. We don't, we don't want to think too hard because if we think too hard, we're using up too much energy. Yeah. That means that we make shortcuts and the shortcuts that we make in our mind, the mental shortcuts, they're called heuristics is the the technical term for it. We all make really similar shortcuts, even though we haven't all agreed on it. We just just make similar shortcuts. So we like to think we're so unique and individual, but we all fall into these, these traps or habits. Yeah. Literally, I mean, nine times out of 10, no matter where I am in the world talking to people about this, I always get people in the room who go, yeah, but I'm more of a system two person. You just go, you're not. As much as you try, you're not. We all are to a certain extent, but you're also trying to conserve your energy. Mm -hmm. So I I just know that you're not. So it's just so interesting. (laughs) Or Um, if you are, I mean... It, it might mask as it, you might think it's system two, but it's actually just mm-hmm. the short, the shortcuts that you've created in system one exactly. that seem like that might seem rational, but in fact, they've just become shortcuts. Exactly. Yeah. I think often, you know, because we're talking to people in a work context, we are generally in a professional mode. We are mm. attempting to be in more of a rational mode. Um, because that's how we convey information to each other. That's how we develop strategies. It takes a certain amount of rationality and logic to do that. But if we think about ourselves in our personal lives, are we really that? How often (laughs) are you making assumptions about things or going with someone else ordered what with what someone else ordered in a restaurant just because you didn't want to make a decision about the menu? You know, we just do this all the time. Yeah, I actually think even though we like to think in, in the work environment, we are more rational. I see so often things like strategic planning where you gravitate towards the things you already know and are comfortable with. Or we talk about this a lot with, I call them reluctant fundraisers, people who have to fundraise out of necessity, but they don't want to. And part of it is their bias is that they don't think of themselves as fundraising, as fundraisers. They think fundraising is icky or like begging. And we know that our brains are designed to avoid the things we don't like. And so they don't fundraise. 
And so you might have, they might rationalize it with all this other information like, well, we don't know anyone who can give, or I don't have this database, or I don't have these things. But what underlies those decisions are still the shortcuts. We almost use the rationality to justify yeah. those those decisions, right? Absolutely. And that's what you're flagging is such an interesting principle. So um, Dr. Robert Cialdini, who uh, founded the Principles of Persuasion, which basically takes, there's a map of about 200 odd shortcuts, mental shortcuts that we make. He's condensed them into six principles. And actually, I think he added a seventh a couple of years ago. But one of those principles is the uh, principle of commitment and consistency. Mm. Now, what you're talking about exactly there is that someone has publicly and actively said, I don't like being a fundraiser. Then what happens is that because they've committed to being that person publicly, they then rationalize why they don't like it in their minds. Yeah. Now, that's interesting in a donor context as well. Mm-hmm. Because we get our donors to say, yes, I care about women's rights. Yes, I care about my local community. You know, whatever it is that you're fundraising for and you remind them that they have committed that sense of their values or their identity out loud, you're drawing on that heuristic. So you're giving them a shortcut to say, you already believe this. Yes. Don't, don't overthink it. Yeah. But sometimes we oversell ourselves again and again and again, trying to reconvince people who really just needed to be reminded that they'd already been convinced or committed. Oh, that's so powerful. And, and I just want to sort of sit on that for a second because I think it's such an important part of how we build relationships or create a context for donors to say yes, which is get them to say yes to something that's easy for them to say yes to. Yes, I believe in this. Yes, I'm committed. Okay, well then you're looking for activities to reinforce those beliefs and part of that is giving, right? Absolutely. I love that. There's really lovely, simple examples of where you can get people to commit to doing that. Um, Rather than just having a yes, I'll donate box, it's a yes, I'll show my support for young women, you know, yeah. just making that tiny change on a button on your website yeah. can show an interesting way of how you can use that principle. So yeah. the, the lovely thing about it is that for small fundra- for small shop fundraising or people who have to do it as part of a wider suite of stuff, what's fun is that the more you dig into decision science, the more you can then use some of those hacks to make your job easier when it comes to communicating effectively and influencing behavior when it comes to fundraising. Exactly. So we've been talking about the neuroscience science part of it, you know, with heuristics and understanding uh, that choice architecture to give people to influence their, their behavior. Are there any other very common heuristics you see, um, present around um, influencing donor behavior? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, I think this pandemic's been a really interesting display of how powerful social proof is. Um, Mm. Certainly, we had an issue whereby uh, there was a lot of hoarding of toilet paper and pasta and flour, uh, which caused (laughs) supplies to just completely end in, in multiple shops. Social proof is a really powerful example of a heuristic that we all draw on now that Mm. can be everything from sometimes I sit in a restaurant and my friend says I'll have that salad please and I go yeah I'll have the same yeah for (laughs) me it's like oh I'll have a glass of wine well okay how can I not (laughs) exactly so you know it's it's quite interesting social proof is 
definitely one of the biggest influences. And I think what's interesting about social proof is that we sort of know it as fundraisers. Our instinct is always like, well, if people see others giving, then they'll give. Again, reinforcing the social proof. What we're not as good at doing in fundraising is implementing it effectively within Mm -hmm. our practices. So I think that's an example of a principle that we can all relate to and we agree that we know, but maybe we're not using it as cleverly as we could be when it comes to the actual fundraising communications that we're Mm -hmm. doing. And what does that look like? Or give us some examples of, you know, is it kind of like an endorsement or, and I think a lot of people, when they look for that, they, they, they're like, well, I don't know any influencers or I, the big common one is like celebrities. And I hear from smaller, we just need a celebrity to endorse us and then we'll be fine. But that's not what this is. It, this is necessarily, I mean, that's an example, but certainly not the most common one that organizations can use, right? You can do this on a much uh, more straightforward, simple way. So can you tell us how that might translate for an organization listening on how they can incorporate that? Absolutely. So, I mean, one very um, well-tested example in the commercial space that's absolutely applicable to the fundraising space is just the use of the word the majority as opposed to many. Mm. So a lot of people say, well, many of our donors given uh, about $20 a month, would you do the same? Many is not as powerful as the majority. And the reason the majority is more powerful because it indicates that there's way more people than you, which means that you're more likely to go with the crowd. So yeah. even just that tiny linguistic change can have behavioral influences and, and, and change the way that people do that. Excellent. I love that. Let's talk a little bit about the evolutionary psychology piece. You know, I've heard people use the terms monkey brain and squirrel brain, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which is really what they're talking about. They're, they're talking about the evolution of, or it's almost like the lack of evolution, right? Like that we still Basically. hold on to, we haven't evolved out of certain yeah. um, behaviors or responses to stimulus. So Absolutely. tell me a little bit about how those might come into play with fundraising. Absolutely. So yeah, the, the squirrel brain, monkey brain, lizard brain, I've heard. Yes, that's the other one, yeah. Um, but predominantly the amygdala, which is a bit sort of at the back of the head and people often know about the amygdala because it's associated with the fight, flight or freeze um, aspect of what we do when we're in a situation where we're suddenly faced with something that endangers us. Mm-hmm. And one of the, I think one of the most important um, mental shortcuts or preferences that we've developed over time due to evolutionary psychology is the fact that in order to continue to survive as a species, we've had to be quite risk averse. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if we're walking in a forest and we see something that looks like it could be a stick that might help us, that if we just picked up, it would help us walking, or it could be a snake, which will bite us and kill us. We will just avoid it rather than pick that up and take the mm-hmm. risk. That means that we are more affected by the risk of something than we are the positive benefits of it. And again, when we're thinking about fundraising, when we're thinking about urgency, when we're thinking about negative consequences and communicating that, I think there's been loads of research that says that it's two times more effective to communicate a potential loss of something than it is to communicate a potential gain. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we often say, oh, it'll be so great for you to donate to us because you'll love it and you'll feel really good about yourself. Whereas if we're communicating the loss of that, well, what you're going to miss out on is the opportunity to help 
these people in this way, that actually can be a more powerful, more effective. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's a very, so. Another practical example of yeah, actually applying that knowledge into the way that we write something or um, the message that we're trying to convey. I love that one. Um, are there any other sort of? That's a really good example. One that I've heard. Even uh, I think the example I've heard is you know people would rather not uh, with. Um, I think they use like a hundred dollars and. You know, you have the the opportunity to gain a hundred dollars or lose a hundred dollars if you do this, and people are so fearful of losing the hundred dollars that they don't they don't participate. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, any thing about the loss is that um, the greater we perceive the loss to be, so not necessarily that it is a greater loss. The greater we perceive it to be, the more it will influence us. So thinking mm. about the perception of that loss is just as important, and the more the more you can perceive it to be bigger and graver, the more effective it is. Yeah. Which is huge for fundraising, right? Like, yeah. What's the, co- the bigger consequence of, of not acting? Um, yeah. That's so, uh, so interesting. Any other really common evolutionary psychology um, examples that you see in our space? Um, I'm trying to think of, I mean, I think social proof again, ties back into it yeah. um again because if we did not go with the crowd around us we would have been ostracized and yeah so those or like t- eaten by a gorilla <laughs> like <laughs> like you literally are safer with a community <laughs> i don't even know if a gorilla would actually act, eats people but <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> I love it. Um, but, but you said it because guess what? That was quite an irrational response. Um, but yeah, so those are yeah. the two things I think are the most commonly associated with the evolutionary psychology side. Um, Amazing. The other thing that's a sort of bizarre, inexplicable truth of human nature is the, the rule of reciprocity, which is that mm-hmm. if somebody does something for us as a favor, we feel so obliged to repay them. Uh, in a way that we cannot explain, we cannot rationalize, we all just do. Yeah. So, you know, if someone sent me a birthday card and then I've forgotten to send them a birthday card, I would feel terrible about it because I didn't reciprocate. Yeah. And again, so important to think about in fundraising. Mm-hmm. Um, if people are dealing with individual donors, you know, how are you doing favors for them in the hope that the favors and the support will be returned again on a on a basic level we know this works because we put on things like gala dinners and we feed people and we entertain people and then at the end of the night we say do you want to give us some money for that so again on a basic level we get it but again how are we using it more effectively and what could be a a better way of communicating especially if we're an organization that doesn't organize a big gala or doesn't do some really really big thing yeah, I feel like even with some basic stewardship and some of the studies around what effective stewardship is like, it's not necessarily big or fancy, but it's that, you know, extending out to someone and building that sense of relationship, I think is a big, big thing around reciprocity, right? It's like, I caring for you, you care for me in return. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, one of the most important things to remember about reciprocity is that the things you do for them, A, need to be done first. <laughs> it doesn't work the other way around. But B, it needs to communicate what you're also then trying to get from them. So it mm. can just be a communication of values. You know, if you want consistency, 
consistency in your communication with them, then be consistent in your community. You know, so yeah, the values and attributes that you need to gift in order to be able to receive back from that yeah. person. Yeah, so so important in that relationship piece. It's almost like treat your neighbor as you want to be treated, right? Like you get what you give. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I love that. So behavioral economics and the environment in which we create for people to make decisions. Uh, There's been some, you know, tons of studies, I think, in in recent-ish years. Um, But this is a relatively new field of uh, expertise for people. So um, it's a really interesting space, but people are, are starting to understand that it draws on those other two principles or sciences to mm-hmm. create the environment for people to make decisions. So what are some examples? I, I always, the one that I was taught first was, you know, small, medium, and large. Right. And we know yeah. when we give donors a, a gift array of like choices, yeah. most people choose the middle. And that's not because of anything other than you've given them three choices and we are all drawn to give them the middle one. Um, <laughs> so tell us a little bit about how that works and how we've, you know, I, I, I want to say like how we've come to understand behavioral economics in yeah. fundraising. <laughs> the thing that I always go to in terms of being able to, if you're thinking about, okay, how do I implement this stuff? How do I understand this stuff? There's two key principles to it. And in order to control the environment in which you're asking people to make decisions or undertake behaviors, you need to do two things. The first thing you need to do is think about how you reduce the friction of that decision or behavior pattern. Mm. So, you know, that can be as simple as the, the number of pages that we have to click through on a website in order to make a donation or the amount of text we have to scroll through to find the donate button, you know, yeah. all of that is unnecessary additional friction that is stopping that person from behaving in the way they need to behave. So organizations have to take a bit of a hard, long look at themselves and go, what friction are we accidentally creating here that we didn't realize before? And a lot of that tends to be, to be honest, on not, not the fun side of fundraising. You know, it's not the storytelling side. It's not the emotive side. It's the really technical, basic, fundamental, practical aspects of raising money, you know. But I, yeah, (laughs) but the funny thing is, is that everything else is kind of, I don't want to say a waste of time, but if you don't understand these things and how people make decisions, you can write the best story, but if you're making it so hard for them to give, you're losing so much support. So it might not be quote unquote fun, but arguably if you're missing it, you're spending a whole lot of extra energy on everything else and it's just not going to be as effective. So I say it's critical, like it's foundational. I don't know why we don't teach this to everyone entering fundraising. (laughs) Well, (laughs) I'm doing it my very best way as a kind of, you know, within my small team of people pushing this stuff. But, you know, There has been a lot more focus because it's more fun to talk about it on the other principle, which is increasing their motivation. Mm. How you connect someone as close as possible so it becomes a really emotional thing. There's so much focus on that in fundraising that it's just not enough exploring how we reduce as much friction as possible. And I find that people who are working 
more effectively in the digital spaces again they have an intuitive understanding of this stuff in a way that other fundraisers might not because they Mm. don't have access to the same data that a lot of digital fundraisers will have who can for example see literally where people are clicking on a website and change something and see if that changes it you know we can't do that with a grant application we can't do that (laughs) with a uh, we can't do that in the same way with other types of fundraising yeah but it's fun it's fundamental like every organization needs to say what friction am I putting in here and sometimes it's interesting because we need sometimes we need to add friction to situations because Mm. sometimes we need to stop people um from making a decision or behaving in a certain way for example the difference with the whole toilet paper hoarding things Mm -hmm. that's supermarkets put up signs saying you're only allowed one per customer don't be a bad person (laughs) it added the friction needed to stop people behaving in that way so sometimes friction is good but I would say in fundraising friction is bad we want people to act and decide as quickly as possible yeah thinking about ways to do that is so super super important Mm -hmm. important. so reducing friction means like making the process simple, straightforward, easy. I love things like forms that autofill, right? Exactly. Like <laughs> where Why you don't do have I to re-enter. At gmail.com. Why yeah. do I do that on any form? It should just <laughs> autofill. Yeah. yeah. Um, what are some other examples of um, like choice architecture? Yeah. So uh, the choice architecture element is yeah. really a supportive suite of tools that help you to reduce friction. So okay. you mentioned, um, you mentioned what's coming called the Goldilocks effect, which is that we tend to go for the thing in the middle, not too hot, not too cold. So that's the sort of principle of that, which yeah. means that if you control the choices that you present to people and you frame the choices within a particular context, they will work within that context. Mm-hmm. They won't go, Oh, hang on, but I'm thinking about it in relation to a bunch of other things that I don't see right now that I'm not thinking about. They just go, right, I have three choices on this page. I'm going to pick that choice. Yeah. So controlling the choice is a really important one. And connected to choice is making sure that you also don't overload people with choice. Mm. And that's something called the paradox of choice. You know, it'd be easy to go, great, you know, if we all love choice, let's give people 10, 12 choices. And the issue is that the more choices we have, the less likely we are to make a decision. So, again, make it just a few clear choices within the parameters that you're looking for and aim for whatever you've got in the middle there to be the thing that you're trying to get people to do. So if you want people to give you $50 donations on your website, don't have the top option as a 50. Have it floating in the middle. Yeah. Only three, you know, exactly. Yeah, we don't want uh, choice fatigue where people are having to make so many decisions or having defaults, right? Like, yeah, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the role of testing in this because it's one of, I mean, some of it, as you said, the neuroscience stuff we can actually map with technology and, and medical devices, but a lot of this work has come about by having these hypotheses or theories of like, Oh, what if we did this? And then they're proven, I'd say time and time again, by a lot of testing. And this has been sort of 
I guess, a growing area of work for thought leaders. And yeah. um, so, so tell us how, how organizations can think about or should think about testing mm-hmm. um, to continually improve their results. Mm-hmm. I mean, fundamentally, with any test, you have to have a particular process. Now, there's generally two types of testing. Uh, you can have a, a single intervention test, which might be that you want to examine the effect of, say, that one small change creates on a campaign that you're running or your website or something like that. From the test and analysis of that, conclude whether that's had an effect or not. Um, the other benefit is that it might be a too small or insignificant for you to measure. You're just too small of an organization or mm. there's just not enough of a sample there. So there's the kind of single intervention. Then there's the layer on layer intervention, which is when you're trying to achieve the largest possible effect. So you might use a few principles and test out a few principles at one given time in order to see if there's a bigger behavioral change. Again, advantages are you're more likely to create a bigger change with it, but then the consequences are of course, that you can't specifically attribute it to any particular line or thing that you've done. And I think with testing generally, if you're following kind of good fundamental principles of defining and measuring a baseline, introducing an intervention, um, and then analysing that intervention, um, you can generally, just within your own means, capacity, resource, have a space to test and explore. And one of the things that we wanted to do, we work a lot in the UK with arts and cultural organisations, some of which are very big, some of which are very small. And we took 10 organisations from across the UK and basically gave them a testing framework to say, we want you to implement some, some of these techniques in your fundraising. We had a real variety. So we had uh, an email campaign. We had a uh, reframing of donation boxes on a in a gallery site we had a legacy direct marketing campaign which I'll be talking about at the individual giving summit and all of those organizations no matter the size were able to construct some sort of experiment Mm -hmm. and some of the results were fantastic and some of the results didn't change anything but the importance was that they are now more in a mindset of understanding how to test and iterate something than they were when they began the process, as well as being much more aware of kind of behavioral economics, decision science and how it works. Yeah. I guess I would say, you know, try and be as clear as you can about what you're looking to measure and what your baseline looks like before an intervention, introduce that intervention and then be very clear and, and concise about how you then, analyze that because there's lots of stuff about kind of correlation and causality that might actually skew your results but Mm -hmm. there's probably an hour's worth of lecture about that (laughs) (laughs) so but being clear and, and just giving stuff a go because this gives us actually quite a cheap way to innovate in our fundraising Mm -hmm. and this is why I sort of you know champion this stuff because I've seen organizations of all sizes try stuff out successfully and unsuccessfully in both cases, some of whom have had no budget to do that. It's just because they decided that they wanted to experiment, that they were able to create the conditions that made it happen. So I think it's just super important to approach it and have a culture of testing um, as much as it is kind of reading about and learning about all of this fun stuff. (laughs) (laughs) 
know it's the most effective and interesting when we can actually apply it to our fundraising. I want to wrap up on how we can take these and influence our own behavior. Because I think that, especially right now, I read a great post on social media. Someone sort of posted, you know, we know people have a hard time changing behavior. And right now in COVID, all of our behavior has had to change significantly and rapidly. And we're, it's, it's hard for us to catch up to that. Mm-hmm. And when we talk to our clients and students about fundraising, often it's in the context of how did they change their behavior mm-hmm. and habits around it. And so what are some of these, and, and we, go, we lean on things like neuroscience and stuff. So what are some ways that, you know, as practitioners or people working in organizations, mm-hmm. we can start to look at these, uh, at, at these sciences and leverage them, not just for fundraising, but also to help us be more effective in our work and, and in showing up uh, and changing our behaviors. Yeah. So I think something that's so interesting about that is that going back to what we talked about with commitment and consistency, if we can actively voluntarily in front of some sort of crowd, whether that's on a zoom or other people around us publicly say, all right, we're going to commit to making this kind of thing happen. We're tricking ourselves and using our own heuristic (laughs) in order to try and then achieve the things that we want to do. And we're much more likely to then comply and, and do that behavior than we do if we didn't. And it's so interesting because I think in in so many personal development courses or coaching sessions or things that we might do, because we're looking for some way to change our behavior, one of the key techniques that's used is is vocalizing a commitment to something at Mm -hmm. the end of it, right? You say, okay, great. How motivated are you to do that thing? When are you going to do it? Yeah. So it's just so interesting that we can absolutely use one of those principles for ourselves. I also think that the more um, genuinely curious and the more we see it in the world around us and outside of our work, the more we can be creatively inspired to implement it in our work as well. Mm. Sometimes just sitting back and watching the way people behave, looking at the news and seeing that story about the toilet paper and going, what, what was the behavior pattern behind that? Oh, I think it was something to do with scarcity and social proof. It was just that interesting. It then becomes, yeah, I guess much more of a, um, a lifelong curiosity that can then be acted on rather than another thing that I need to do to improve my fundraising. (laughs) And that's definitely the attitude that I think I've taken, I've taken from it as somebody who, well, is paid to train and support people to develop initiatives that make more successful fundraising using these tools. So I think stuff about commit, commit out there to it. Um, Try and find a, the bits of it that really interest you and drive you both in your outside life and within work. And hopefully those will be some agents of change towards modifying that behavior. Amazing. 
Where can our listeners? So I, I definitely want to make sure that anyone who's who's listening and loves this conversation, uh, there is a link to join us at the individual giving virtual summit where you will be presenting, um, and I will be co-hosting. So we really hope to see people there. This is one of my favorite topics. Um, period. I, I I love it. Um, but if people want to learn more about you and your work, where can they find you? Great. So um, I go by Dana K. Siegel on my LinkedIn, my Twitter. Um, You can find me also on the Management Centre website in the UK. And yeah, I think that there's my website's danakseagle.com as well. So yeah, search for that and you'll find me. And you'll also see me at the Individual Giving Summit talking about this in more detail and also sharing really, really practical examples of how this can be implemented in legacies. So if you're interested in that, do tune in. And who's not interested in legacy giving, (laughs) right? (laughs) It's always what... Growing fundraising markets in the world. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And interestingly, it's one of the things where I feel like organizations drag their feet. So they can actually leverage their own behavioral change, you know, taking this to change, influence their own adoption of new things, you know, leverage these, these insights for yourself. And then of course, for your fundraising. So it was such a nice, uh, so nice to have you on the podcast. Um, and thank you so much for sharing your incredible work. Thanks for such a good conversation. And it's just, it's even more fun for me because I can just feel your enthusiasm for it radiating and it just made such a great conversation. So thank you so much. And I look forward to seeing you online in June. Definitely. And of course, thank you to all of our listeners. We'll see you next time. Well, folks, that's it for today's episode of The Small Nonprofit. I'm your host, Cindy Wagman, and this show is brought to you by The Good Partnership. As a reminder, if you want more resources around raising more money for your small nonprofit, visit thegoodpartnership.com and download our free fundraising strategy guide. I'll see you next week.